This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by the Alpha Young Writers Workshop, a Pittsburgh-area summer writing program for fantasy and science fiction fans ages 14 to 19. Learn more at alpha.spellcaster.org. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host... David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 187 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Charlie Jane Anders, editor-in-chief of io9, the internet's most popular science fiction website. She also won a Hugo Award in 2012 for her story Six Months, Three Days. And we'll be speaking with her today about her first fantasy novel, All the Birds in the Sky, about two friends who find themselves on opposite sides of a war between witches and mad scientists. And today's show is brought to you by the Alpha Young Writers Workshop. This is a writing class for students ages 14 to 19 that meets each summer at the University of Pittsburgh-Greensburg. Over the course of the workshop, students write, critique, and revise their own stories, and attend lectures from some of today's most popular authors. The guest authors for this summer will be Melinda Lowe, Max Gladstone, Amal El-Motar, and Tamara Pierce. And the workshop staff includes novelist Karina Sumner-Smith and Strange Horizons editor Catherine Cray. The staff this year also includes two former Alpha students, Seth Dickinson and Lara Elena Donnelly, who both recently sold novels to Tor. I've been on the staff at Alpha for over a decade, and I've seen firsthand how it can be a life-changing experience for the students, most of whom have never really had a chance to meet anyone else who's serious about writing fantasy and science fiction. So it's just a great program, and I'd strongly encourage everyone to go check it out over at alpha.spellcaster.org. Applications are open now and will run through March 1st. And now, here's our interview with Charlie Jane Anders. All right, so we're here with Charlie Jane Anders. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Okay, so tell us a bit about how you first got into reading fantasy and science fiction. I mean, I think I was always obsessed with science fiction and fantasy from a young age. Uh, Some of my earliest memories of reading are are authors like uh, Lloyd Alexander and... Um, the Phantom Tollbooth by Norman Juster was a book that I read early on uh, when I was young and impressionable. I read all of the Doctor Who novels by Terence Dix and other authors when I was a kid. And, um, you know, and then Madeline Lengel, A Wrinkle in Time, those were sort of my gateway books, I think, to reading in general, but especially to genre fiction. I actually saw you say that Douglas Adams was one of your favorite authors. Yeah, I was obsessed with Douglas Adams. And, you know, as a Doctor Who fan, I already kind of knew of him. But I became obsessed with his his writing and, you know, listened to all the radio shows and read all the books. And, um, you know, I still have a signed picture of him over my desk, which my parents got for me uh, at some point in the 80s when I was, I guess I was either out of town or sick or something. Um, and they went and got me his autograph, which is, you know, it's looking down on me right now. It's like a signed picture of him. Uh, and, you know, Douglas Adams led me to Kurt Vonnegut. And so I, um, I started to read Vonnegut as well. And, and that ended up having a huge influence on me as well. So, so what was it about authors like Douglas Adams and Kurt Vonnegut that, that you really liked? I mean, it was the humor and uh, and the sort of absurdism of of both of their perspectives on on the sort of weirdness and craziness of life uh, that really won me over. But also, um, I think that 
you know, with both of them, there's a kind of sense of, of you know, the sadness and futility of, of people trying to figure out the meaning of existence when they ought to be just trying to be good to each other, I guess, is, is my sort of way of oversimplifying it. There's, there's kind of a wistfulness in both of their work that comes through and um, that, you know, you're constantly being confronted with the stupidity and heedlessness of, of the cosmos and people are struggling to, you know, do good and, and uh, make a difference. But there's just this sort of crushing um, futility that comes down on you in, in both of their work. And it kind of goes along with the absurdism, but I actually find certain passages in both Vonnegut and, and Douglas Adams very sad. Um, and, you know, it's kind of comes out of the humor in unexpected ways, which is something that I always love. I always love things that can do that. Yeah, well, no, and I, I can definitely see how that's influenced your writing. But before we get to that, why don't you just say a bit about how did you first make contact with other science fiction writers and get involved with the community? You know, it was a long, slow process. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, would go to conventions, you know, for years and years. And it never really dawned on me for a long time that conventions were also a place to kind of meet other writers and and do writing stuff. I sort of thought of them as places where, you know, you dressed up in costumes and kind of went to panels and just kind of hung out and did geeky trivia or something, you know, when I was, uh, in, when I was a teenager and, and kind of young adult. And, um, you know, I think a big thing for me was actually joining a writing group, like a writing workshop for science fiction writers. And that was really where I started to get plugged into more of the, actual world of science fiction writing. Until then, I had always thought of it as something that you just kind of did in isolation without talking to anybody else. Um, and you just kind of scribbled away in your room, you know, on, on your latest science fiction story that nobody would ever read. And, and that was kind of how I thought it went. And so being in a writing group and being around other writers uh, made me realize that, oh, actually, there's a whole, you know, world out there and I can actually connect to it. And then, you know, um, obviously when I was hired to work on io9, that made a huge difference because all of a sudden I was writing articles about science fiction that people were reading and people wanted to talk to me about them and going to conventions and going to things like Worldcon became much more about, you know, interacting with people who had seen at least my work on io9. And so that, that made a huge difference, obviously. Well, right. So how did that come about that you got hired for io9? It was basically, um, it was kind of just pure luck. I mean, Nick Denton, uh, who owns Gawker Media and, and runs Gawker Media, is uh, a huge science fiction fan. He's obsessed with, with Asimov in particular. And um, he had always wanted to do a science fiction blog. And he got connected with with Annalie Newitz, um, who, you know, my partner, who I worked with on a magazine called Other, for several years. And um, she was working at Wired Magazine at the time, and he approached her about starting this science fiction blog that he wanted to do. And, you know, amazingly, she thought of including me in that because we had already collaborated on some other stuff. And um, she was able to convince them to, to bring me into it pretty early. And that was just, 
you know, the most amazing opportunity. It was basically like my dream job. It was, um, you know, getting to spout off and, you know, share my kind of ill-informed opinions about science fiction and fantasy with, with the whole internet was just, you know, an incredible opportunity. And um, I'm still kind of amazed that that came about. Like, it's still hard to believe that I get to do this every day and that I get paid to do this. Uh, it's kind of nuts. <laughs> well, so when it was first starting out, kind of what was your initial vision for the site? What were you hoping to accomplish with it? I mean, Nick's vision, which we shared, was that this would be a site whose main thesis is that science fiction has become mainstream culture and that science fiction has, to some extent, come true. Like, we're living in a science fictional world. Like, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed, as, as William Gibson says. And that, you know, we are living in a, in a world where we're constantly seeing things that would have seemed like science fiction not too long ago. And so, basically, the vision of the site was to kind of Instead of treating science fiction like a specialty topic or something aimed at a niche audience, to treat it as something that was just – we automatically assumed it was a mainstream topic and that we were talking about mainstream culture and that our readers were ordinary people who just happened to love science fiction. Um, and so – and then Annalise, you know, brilliant addition to that was that one way to get it, the the fact that – science fiction has become kind of reality is by talking about science as well. And so the, the idea of blending science and science fiction on one website and having them side by side and kind of informing each other and, and feeding into each other was really, I think the thing that made IO9 um, such a, you know, such a unique vision for, you know, the first several years. Right, and I saw Annalise said that she was kind of inspired by Omni magazine. She was wanted to do something kind of like that. Yeah, I mean that was something we talked about constantly, and I know that Annalise uh, was just obsessed with Omni magazine when she was younger, and that that was a huge part of her dream for for IO9. And actually, weirdly, like the last couple of times I went into Gawker's offices in New York, there's a big magazine rack and. For some reason, it's now just stuffed with old copies of Omni from the late 70s, early 80s. So somebody there is 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 also a huge fan. Hmm. Um, but I also saw in this article, Annalise, she also says, uh, Charlie, Jane, and I never thought IO9 would last more than a year. Like, what were some of the challenges when you started out? Well, it was more just that, you know, at the time, Gawker Media was starting a lot of sites pretty regularly. And... Um, a lot of them were just kind of, you know, they tried for a while and then didn't last, or they, you know, in some cases they got sold or spun off. And um, I think that IO9 just seemed like a huge experiment. It seemed like a, a, a crazy venture that nobody knew if it was going to work or not. Um, the whole idea of blending science and science fiction seemed kind of risky or, or out there or whatever. And the whole idea of uh, just doing a whole site about those topics, it seemed like something that, you know, just might not reach a big enough audience or, or might not win over people um, who were interested in those topics. And, you know, it was a huge question mark. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you, you think you've had a big success though, reaching out beyond just the hardcore science fiction fans and bringing in, as you said, just ordinary people. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it. It seems as though 
um, you know, we obviously have a really great community of, of regular readers and um, the, the people who write in the comments every single day on io9 are some of the smartest, most, um, you know, erudite and thoughtful people I know. I, I always just get a thrill out of reading the comments, but it seems as though uh, on a good day, we're reaching, you know, way beyond our core audience into an audience of, of people who don't think of themselves as science fiction or fantasy fans, but, you know, just enjoy Star Trek, Star Wars, you know, Ursula Le Guin and uh, Margaret Atwood and, and William Gibson. Um, I mean, there's no question that the, the audience of people who, who read William Gibson is, you know, more diverse or bigger or, or wider or, or something along those lines than, than people who would go to a convention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so Ion9's been going now for about eight years, is that right? Yeah, I mean, we started, I started working on it in sort of mid-2007, and it really cranked into high gear in the fall of 2007. And then we went public, like we publicly launched uh, the, at the start of 2008. So, um, I mean, it's about eight years now, I guess. So are there any big milestones that stand out or big lessons you've learned in those eight years? I mean, a big milestone was when we got, when io9 was mentioned, you know, the, the word io9 was kind of snuck into an episode of Dollhouse, Joss Whedon's uh, TV show. Um, and that was only like probably a couple of years after we launched, I'm guessing, because when was Dollhouse on? It was like, it was the second season and Summer Glau says the words io9 uh, on television, which was just, holy cow, that's insane. Um, and lessons are just, you know, I think over time I've just I've learned so much in general about genre and storytelling and how to write about these topics in a slightly more nuanced fashion. I, I feel as though my learning curve just in general doing IO9 has been ridiculously steep and I'm still, you know, learning sometimes through horrible mistakes, but sometimes just through um figuring stuff out as I go. You know, every day I'm still learning about how to write about these topics in a in a smart way. In yeah, no, what I hope is a smart way, I guess I should say, um, in a less dumb way, I should say. Hmm. Well, so, and you've been working on your own fiction. Were you working on it the whole time or did you kind of take a break from it for a little while or? Yeah. I mean, I've been working on fiction for as long as I can remember. And definitely for the last, you know, 15 years, it's been what I consider my career. Um, and when I started io9, it was with the idea that I was going to just keep writing fiction the whole time and and io9 would be you know the best day job in the world but still my day job and um you know for the first 6 months basically from november 2007 to sometime in 2008 i did have to quit writing fiction which was the longest period i've gone you know that i can remember where i wasn't writing fiction and it was really hard that was it was actually hard for me to put that aside i was in the middle of writing an epic fantasy novel that ended up not actually getting published anyway, but it was a novel that I was really excited about at the time. And um, I had to just put it aside and, and focus on io9 because working on that site was, you know, basically every waking minute for, you know, about six months. Then, and then you get to where you can do the same things in less time and you can kind of, the same, the things that were taking you hours are now taking you a lot less because you've, you've gotten better or faster or whatever. 
Right. And you mentioned that you had been involved with writers groups. Were those pro writers in those groups or other aspiring writers? It was other aspiring writers. I, I've never been in a – I guess I've been in one group where there were pro writers. But uh, generally, the groups I've been in have been you know, just other people who were trying to break in. And especially the, one I, the first one I joined, uh, there was nobody who had really broken out in the group, although there were people who had been published – and it was just, you know, everybody was kind of at the same level. So it was really good to just get that kind of uh, support from other people who were just sending their stuff out and getting piles of rejections mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. And so when did you really start breaking into print? Um, I mean, it was a slow and kind of weird process. I mean, um, probably my first big publication was Strange Horizons, which is true of a, a lot of writers I know. Like Strange Horizons was great about accepting people who were kind of new and untested. And they worked with me a lot on that story to make it better. Um, And, you know, I also, around that time that I was getting into Strange Horizons, I was also branching out into literary fiction and erotica and a couple of other genres. And um, I actually sold a story to a pretty well-known literary magazine in, I guess, 2001, uh, Zizifa. It's a, it's a magazine that's well-known on the West Coast, at least. And so that was a weird fluke that, again, Zizifa really believed in in pulling people out of the slush, and every single issue they would be very excited to point out which authors were the first were being published for the first time ever. Uh, that was the thing that they were really into. And so that was really nice. Um, but uh, it wasn't, you know, and then basically for the decade that followed, I was just sort of getting a piece here and a piece there. And I was in some pretty big anthologies um, that were published by, you know, Harper Collins and, and stuff, but it wasn't until tour.com uh, picked up, um, started publishing my stories in like 2010 or 2011 that I really went on people's radar screens as, as a fiction writer, I think. Um, and in fact, you know, until the tour.com stories, I would regularly have people come up to me at conventions and say, Oh, I didn't know you wrote fiction because they thought, I just I did IO9 and that was all I did. Right. And you would ha- you had a first novel Choir Boy that was not science fiction. W- when when was that published? That was published in 2005, although I actually mostly wrote it in 2001. And it was uh it has like maybe just a hint of magic realism here and there, but it's not really a genre novel. It's it's a very weird literary novel. Uh-huh. So so why did you decide to make your debut uh in the literary space? I mean, you know, like I said, uh, at that time I was publishing a lot in literary magazines, including a lot of sort of smaller literary magazines that have since folded, unfortunately. Um, and I was very much involved in, in the – I mean, I still am involved in, in the literary world. Um, I was – you know, I was already running a, a spoken word series that included a lot of literary people. And um, I was that, – at that time I was doing – other magazine, which published a lot of literary fiction alongside genre fiction. And, um, you know, I think that that was at the time in the, like 2005 ish, it was sort of a toss up for me, whether I was going to really make my, you know, define myself as a science fiction fantasy writer or as a, as a literary author. Um, and they both seemed like directions that were sort of equally open to me. To, to the extent that either of them, one of them was, which, you know, neither one of them was exactly, you know, wide open, but they were both things that seemed at least equally plausible, kind of. 
Right. And so then what happens after that? Because you were working on, I think, like three or four or five different novels then? Yeah. I mean, I wrote a bunch of novels and, um, you know, I, I had two novels that I was kind of working on simultaneously after Choir Boy. And one was straight up literary fiction with, again, maybe just a hint of magical realism. And the other one was a weird sort of post-apocalyptic slash apocalyptic story that uh, I ended up cutting down from like 90,000 words to 20,000 words and putting into uh, and and selling to John Joseph Adams for his apocalypse triptych. Um, so one of those novels actually did kind of see print in the end, but the literary one, um, you know, never, never made it out into the world, partly because the small press publishers all kind of imploded in, I guess, 2007, 2008. Right. But you, you had one, I think it was kind of an urban fantasy that you actually got, that was, you were working on pretty seriously. Yeah. I mean, that was the, the last one I did before all the birds in the sky. And there was a thing of. You know, after those other novels, I was working on this urban fantasy that was sort of a hard-boiled noir uh, thing about uh, this guy who's an enforcer for the sort of magical syndicate, and he goes around basically just being a leg breaker. Um, and I still really like that novel a lot. I think it's got a lot of really interesting stuff in it. And you know, as someone who I went on a huge kick, I guess, in college and after college of reading basically everything by like Raymond Chandler and Ross MacDonald and Dashiell Hammett, but also people like Mickey Spillane, who I kind of think is an underrated writer. I read all of Mickey Spillane's books at one point. Um, and so I love that kind of noir, hard-boiled, you know, violent, dark, gritty sensibility. And I, I was really excited to explore that and use – uh, it in a fantasy setting, especially after reading things like Sandman Slim and Harry Connolly's uh, books and some other, you know, I guess Seanan McGuire has some of that as well in, in her October Day novels. I love that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, it was really fun to explore that. And it was also a really silly, funny book in some ways. Um, but it seemed like the people that I showed it to liked it but didn't love it. The, the urban fantasy book, like nobody was, nobody seemed, people said, oh yeah, that was really fun, but nobody seemed really excited about it. And it kind of felt like something that other people could have written. Whereas All the Birds in the Sky, when I was getting further into that, felt more like something that only I could have written for better or worse. Like maybe, you know, <laughs> in some ways that might not be such a good thing, but you know, it was, it was more uniquely my work. And, um, and you know, the other thing I, I, I blogged about this, but um, you know, after I wrote um, Six Months, Three Days, which was that, you know, novelette that won the Hugo and got, you know, some attention in general, um, it felt like a novel that was closer to that in terms of tone and ideas and stuff was was maybe more in line with what people seem to be enjoying about my writing in general. So it just seemed like a better idea to focus on on All the Birds in the Sky. Well, for people who haven't read Six Months, Three Days, why don't you say just a little bit more about what that one's about? Yeah, I mean, basically Six Months, Three Days, like All the Birds in the Sky, is a relationship story. And it's using a relationship between two people to hopefully, in a non-bludgeony way, explore some big ideas. Um, in, in Six Months, Three Days, there are two clairvoyants, people who could see the future, but one of them, this guy Doug, sees a uh, a fixed future that 
cannot be changed at all. Um, it's basically just like one set future, whatever he sees will happen is doomed to happen and there's no changing it. Whereas Judy sees um, a multitude of possible futures and she, she believes that she can choose among them and that she can actually influence what happens in the future. And so it's the whole fate versus free will, um, you know, determinism argument, but dramatized through a relationship in which basically, you know, one person believes that the course of the relationship is already completely set in stone and the other person kind of believes that there might be some wiggle room. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a story that's kind of sad, but also I think has a little bit of hopefulness in it. And the big challenge for me in that, in that story was how to, you know, how to have a satisfying resolution you know, while also dealing with the question of which they can't both be right, but they kind of both are right. And how does that work? Right. And I saw that actually some philosophy classes now, they're having the students read the story in the class. That's insane. I, I, I guess I had heard that. That's that's kind of nuts. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, as long, if they're getting something out of it, that's great. My dad was a philosophy professor. So the thought of people studying that in philosophy class is kind of amazing. Hmm. Um, okay, and so you said that, th- so that story wins the Hugo, and then where where were you in the process of writing All the Birds in the Sky at that time? I mean, I was, you know, I was definitely in the middle of it. I was like, I was definitely kind of uh, in the trenches of it. I remember um, when I went to the Nebula Awards, where it was also Six Months, Three Days was also nominated. Um, I was at the Nebula Awards, and I was uh, sitting with my editor, Patrick Nelson Hayden, uh, at the bar. And I mentioned to him that I had this novel that was basically at that point just a pile of notebooks that I had scribbled in. And that, you know, if my apartment burned down while I was traveling at the nebulas, that the novel was gone. But that, you know, otherwise I was pretty excited about it. And, um, you know, I, I think it was, you know, everybody was like, you should scan those or do something so that you don't, so you have some kind of backup in case, you know, I was at a table full of people and everybody was kind of horrified. Well, so so you said uh, on your blog, you said there were a few years that I was straight up terrified that absolutely nobody was going to get this book. Like, what was it about All the Birds in the Sky that made you nervous in that way? I mean, you know, there's a downside to spending all your time on the internet reading <laughs> people arguing about books and, and about writing and about, you know, stories. And I, I knew that, you know, there were some things I was doing in this book that were might rub people the wrong way. Just the fact that it kind of starts out as a young adult novel and then about a hundred pages in, you jump forward and it's they're suddenly in their twenties. You know, some people were just not gonna like that. Um and, you know, the fact that the narrator is kind of weird. It's definitely a book that's, you know, third person omniscient, but most of the time it's a very tight omniscient, which I think is actually one of the things I like about omniscient narration is that you can actually go as tight as you want to. Um, You can be completely in one character's head for a dozen pages and only see what that character sees and know what that character knows. But you have the option to kind of pull back and have a moment of omniscience. And that's a technique that fiction writers have been using forever, but it's something that's more unfamiliar to, I think, today's readers. There's a part of the book where... Uh, the narrator does something kind of obnoxious uh, where 
you know, Patricia and Lawrence are watching people go by on this escalator, um, and they're speculating about the people based on what their shoes look like because that's all they can see of them. And then it turns out that they're actually right about one of the people going by on the escalator. And that's just like a funny, weird thing that the narrator does. And I was sort of like, oh, this is going to be the moment where a lot of people throw the book across the room. So I definitely had that at times where I was like doing things that I thought were kind of risky and kind of breaking some of what people had been told were the rules of, of fiction writing. And I had in the back of my mind that there were going to be people who were going to just object violently to what I was doing. Hmm. Well, you mentioned Patricia and Lawrence. Why don't you say a bit more about them? Yeah, I mean, they're the main characters of All the Birds in the Sky. Um, so Patricia is a witch, and she has magical powers from an early age. Uh, she Early on, she finds that she can talk to animals, although this is not an ability that she can call on whenever she wants it or that is, like, reliable. It's something that just sort of happens on occasion. And um, she grows up feeling super isolated, but also super passionate about achieving her destiny as a witch and becoming the person that she was supposed to be. And she feels like nothing in her life will make sense unless she can actually use magic and be this kind of, um, this person who can actually make a difference. And the reason why she wants to be a witch is so that she can help people and also help creatures. She, she sees that there's all this suffering in the world and she really wants to do something about it. And one of her main things is compassion, but also she's really, really shaped by the fact that her parents kind of didn't approve of her when she was growing up. And she always kind of wants that approval from people, but she also kind of resents the fact that she wants that approval. And so it's kind of a, she has a kind of complicated relationship with other people in that way. Um, Lawrence, meanwhile, is the mad scientist and you know he's um you know from early on he's inventing things and building things he starts writing computer programs when he's really young and then he finds the schematics on the internet to build this device that is basically a two-second time machine you you push a button and it jumps you forward in time two seconds and it's almost useless except that occasionally if you're in a really kind of crappy situation, you can use this device to just kind of jump a little bit ahead and maybe things will have gotten slightly better. Um, and he really wants to find other mad scientists and inventors and makers, and he just happens to be stuck in a place where there's nobody else like that around, and he's just a little bit too weird and out there for the other geeks at his school. He's constantly lighting things on fire and building you know, weird robots and ray guns and stuff. And um, so he feels like an outcast in sort of a different but, you know, kind of compatible way than Patricia does. And they find each other in junior high and basically bond over the fact that they're both outcasts. But they also have a really kind of thorny, weird relationship in junior high, especially after Patricia starts getting kind of labeled as kind of goth, which allegedly kind of a Satanist character um, and it's sort of, you know, the whole thing of in junior high, even if you're kind of an outcast, you don't necessarily want to take on the radioactivity from someone else's uh, social ostracism. Um, and, you know, for both of those characters, one of the things that I really obsessed about was making them people sort of, like I said a moment ago, making them people beyond just their designation. Like Lawrence isn't just 
kind of your stereotypical scientist who's like coldly rational and constantly being empirical and acting like Mr. Spock or, you know, analyzing everything all the time. He's got a lot of, uh, you know, more kind of complicated emotional issues that he's dealing with. And, um, you know, and Patricia is not just sort of the earth mother witch that you might expect her to be, but she's actually kind of a spiky person. And, you know, the more I delved into the things that kind of almost played against the stereotype of what you'd expect these characters to be like, the better I felt like they worked as characters, at least hopefully. Right, because I think that's one of the you, you I know you wrote several drafts of this book, and I think that that's one thing that happened over the revisions, right, is you kind of stripped out the extraneous genre elements in a way. That was one of the things that happened. And, you know, you know, earlier drafts of the book had like aliens and um, a bunch of other stuff in them. At one point, Patricia had this evil wizard that she kept having to fight who was just kind of like her Voldemort and he would just pop up occasionally. And maybe in the end of the book, he would have to team up with her because things got that bad. Uh, but it was just, you know, it was, I was just seeing how much stuff I could throw in and how much I could get away with. And I was just like, you know, I'm already writing a crazy book that is like kind of a weird concept. Why don't I just see how much I can actually put in there before it just breaks? And indeed, I put stuff in there until it <laughs> broke. And, you know, that was the thing that happened. But um, I, I did kind of try to to kind of overstuff it with genre elements. And in general, it was much more of a kind of genre spoof early on than it became. And like, that was again, a thing where like things like writing six months, three days and kind of thinking about what kind of story I wanted to tell with this book um, really changed things for me because I was like, okay, um, you know, what's really interesting here is the relationship and the relationship only works if we're emotionally invested in the characters separately and together. And, you know, there was kind of a, a eureka moment for me pretty late in the process, actually, like the, like the sixth draft, I guess. There was this eureka moment where I was like, actually, at this point, all of the scenes I really like in this novel are the ones where Lawrence and Patricia are together. And there are good reasons for them to not be together at certain parts of the book. But the more I could push that and the more I could have them interacting with each other and having conversations and dealing with stuff together, the more... I was personally invested in the book, and the less it just felt like a jumble of ideas. Right. Do you, do you see this as kind of like a, a Romeo and Juliet story in any way with the science and magic rather than the two different families? I mean, I think that any great relationship story, or this is probably one of those generalizations that is going to get me into trouble, but I think a lot of great relationship stories involve people who have some crucial difference or some major reason for not belonging together or for for having opposing viewpoints. And that's kind of just, you know, if you read any romance novel, that's what you'll probably find to some extent. And I think that, you know, conflict also makes any relationship more interesting than two people who agree about everything mm -hmm. and just sit around saying, yes, quite right, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think that people, it's it's more dynamic and more interesting if there's a reason for conflict and disagreement. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I never wanted their relationship to be defined 
by that. And, you know, I kind of was surprised by how much I found myself kind of either pushing against that or exploring it from different angles than just they have a disagreement. They do disagree about stuff quite a bit, and there are moments where they actually kind of argue. But I also wanted it to be more complicated than that so that when those conflicts came up, it didn't feel like, oh, yeah, of course, this is the conflict we've just been kind of hammering on throughout the book, kind of. Right. Right. And so then in addition to this science versus magic conflict, there's also the conflict between the healer magic versus the trickster magic. Sort of where did that idea come from? I mean, there was a couple parts to that. And that's something that I really was was excited by. Um, one part of that was just that, you know, I was obsessing for months about how does magic work in this book. And I had kind of placeholdery stuff that I wasn't really happy with. And at some point I had to just figure out a, a rationale and a, and a system for how the magicians, how the witches in this book would operate. It was hard. I've read a ton of fantasy and there's so many different interesting ways that magic is shaped in different worlds. Um, and I wanted to come up with something that I hadn't seen before. And it just, hours of staring at a blank computer screen, I finally came up with this idea that there are two schools of magic and that they've been merged. And, you know, and part of that was the idea that I wanted to very much dance around the existence of real life schools of magic and real life ideas of magic in our world. And I thought that coming up with two kind of very broad umbrella designations of magic was a way to kind of hand wave the idea that yes, there were all these different magical traditions, but they had been gathered into these two schools and thus we didn't have to kind of worry about getting the details of one of these things, you know, one of these real life cultural traditions that are obviously you you can't get stuff like that wrong if you if you start invoking it. Um and you have to be really careful with how you invoke it. So I felt like that was a way of kind of cheating a little bit, but also just acknowledging that yes, there are real life traditions and you know, this was just a way of kind of encompassing them. Um, but also, um, you know, I was fascinated by the idea that there was this dichotomy that had already at some point in the past been kind of found to be a false dichotomy and that had already been reconciled and that good magic involved using both of these uh, supposedly opposite viewpoints um, and that you were a better magician if you could do both together. How about this idea that eating spicy food can help unlock your magic powers? Where'd that idea come from? That was the super random weird thing that came to me. And it, I don't even know where that came from. I think it was just a combination of the fact that she grows up in this house that was an old spice warehouse in, you know, colonial times. And so there's all these like lingering spice um, fragrances and things and, and old bits of spices everywhere. And then... Just, you know, for some reason in my mind, that turned into this idea that when she eats a lot of spicy food, it's such a powerful physical sensation that it just causes her to leave her body and have this powerful, almost vision quest. And that was something that just kind of, you know, there are certain parts, especially when it comes to magic, there are certain parts of the book where I just kind of went with whatever subconsciously came to me and just kind of didn't try to analyze it too much because I wanted the magic to feel a little bit dreamlike and a little bit kind of not entirely logical. Um, I didn't try to kind of 
explain to myself too much, but it was a thing that kind of made sense instinctively. But then it was also important that later on, she shouldn't be able to just use that as an automatic thing, like, oh, I eat some spicy food and then I can do magic, because then nothing should be that easy ever. Right. Okay, so that's the magic. And then how about the science in the book? Did you have to do a lot of research for this? Because in the acknowledgments, you mentioned a bunch of people that sounds like really gave you some great scientific help with the book. Yeah. And again, that was the thing where, you know, the book started out as sort of a genre spoof a little bit. And it was very much, you know, like Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius. And it's just like, I'm inventing the something O-Mat. I'm inventing the whatever Ray. And there's still some of that in there. Uh, but at some point I decided that, you know, if the science gets too unrealistic and too kind of, you know, cartoony, then it is almost magic. And if you're going to have magic and science opposite each other or alongside each other, then the science has to feel distinct. And the way to do that seemed to be to really try to push it as far as I could in the direction of being somewhat plausible while still having it be, you know, unreal enough that it could be mad science rather than just regular science. Like, it's, it was important to me that Lawrence be a mad scientist. He's not coming up with a new app or whatever. He's, mm -hmm. he's coming up with crazy, out-of-this-world stuff. And, um, you know, and part of that was that I wanted, when he's a grown-up, I wanted him to be, you know, in a loft in Soma, basically in a startup, working alongside other science geniuses, not so much in... Uh, you know, a lair somewhere. Um, and so for the, the science, I really, you know, I was lucky that at io9, we actually had a couple of columns that we used to do. One was called Ask a BioGeek by this Berkeley professor, uh, Terry Johnson. And the other was called Ask a Physicist by this uh, Drexel University physics professor, uh, Dr. Dave Goldberg. And they've both written amazing books. Uh, Terry wrote um, how to Defeat Your Own Clone, or co-wrote, I guess. And Dr. Dave wrote The Universe in the Rearview Mirror. Those are fantastic books that everybody should pick up. And they, to this day, are incredibly generous about being willing to have me just bug them with my nonsense science questions. And I'll come to them with, like, I came up with this crazy thing. How do I explain this in a way that sounds reasonable? Or how do I fix it so it's not as crazy? And actually, Dr. Dave, like, spent... God knows how much time with me on this time travel story I was doing that just got reprinted at Lightspeed recently, where I actually was doing, I was sitting up late at night doing trigonometry to figure out stuff about how time travel was working in my world. And he was doing physics, you know, helping me to do the physics of it. Um, so he's incredibly nice about that kind of stuff. But um, for this, I just, I wanted things like you know, the wormhole machine that Lawrence is working on in the second half of the book and some of the other science stuff to have at least, you know, some connection to real science uh, so that it wasn't going to be, you know, just kind of crazy hand wavy throwing stuff up at the air kind of stuff. Well, like, like one line that jumps out at me is what a character says, we always suspected that gravity was so weak in our world because most of it was in another dimension. I was just curious if there was any real science behind that. I mean, that was something that I came up with on my own. And then I, you know, ran it past Dr. Dave and he didn't throw up. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, I think it's at least something that, that has like a, a ring of, of, of truth to it. I mean, I'm sort of always fascinated by the idea that, 
there's a lot that we don't understand about gravity and that, you know, it's, it's a relatively weak force in our, in our universe. That's something that I personally am really curious about. And my own attempts to explore that are kind of, you know, feeble, but it's something that I'm, I think was an interesting way to kind of uh, bring stuff together in, in, in the book. Right. And then like a really big theme in this book is that humanity is just on the verge of destroying itself and drastic measures need to be taken. And the scientists in the book and the wizards have different drastic measures that they think ought to be taken. But I was just kind of curious what you do you think we're that close to destroying ourselves? And do you think that drastic measures need to be taken? I mean, I worry about it. I worry about, you know, the damage that we're doing to the our own habitat on this planet and about you know, the kind of unsustainable system that we've built for ourselves. I think that anybody who pays attention to what's going on in the world has to worry about that stuff. I also was very careful in the book to include voices who didn't think that the world was ending. And I I think that, you know, for my purposes in the book, it's not so much that you have to, that the book needs you to believe that the world is coming to an end. It's that the book needs you to believe that these people think that the world is coming to an end because that justifies the actions that they want to take. And that was something that was really important to me to, to make kind of to hint at that, you know, especially Milton Durth, who's the guy who um, really believes that we're going to need a new planet soon. Um, he's kind of an, an eternal pessimist. And I included a, in earlier drafts of the book, I included a whole story about why he became so pessimistic about human nature and about um, the future of our species. But I had, that ended up being cut purely for length reasons. But there is one character in the book who says, it's not the apocalypse, it's just an adjustment in our standard of living. And I thought that that was something that absolutely had to be in there uh, because it's not, you know, a unanimous viewpoint. I think that right now, everybody has these fears of the apocalypse because we see so many things that seem kind of beyond our control and you know we there's all all this talk about us being on the verge of the sixth mass extinction and you know i think it's important to engage with that and to talk about that in pop culture and in in uh culture generally and you know anna lee newitz wrote this amazing book uh scatter adapt and remember how you know how we'll survive the next mass extinction uh, to address that and to talk about, you know, to have an optimistic viewpoint on what we're going to do, you know, if the apocalypse does happen. Yeah, I actually interviewed Anna Lee about Scatter Adapt Remember when it came out. So, oh, cool. People can go dig through the archives and find that if they they want to know more. Um, and then you had a blog post I thought was really interesting and that's relevant to this book, and it's titled "Can You Be a Diehard Rationalist but Also Totally Superstitious?" (Parentheses asking for a friend. <laughs> Right. That was on my Tumblr. Yeah. I, you know, I'm very, very, very superstitious and I engage in a lot of like magical thinking. Um, and I kind of know that that's nonsense or whatever, but I also kind of buy into it. And I don't know, I, I have like a weird relationship to reality, I guess. And partly because reality always seems very weird to me, like as just a person living through it, it, it never feels entirely predictable or, or reasonable. And so I kind of indulge in a little bit of superstition and, and, you know, magical viewpoints in my own life, just because 
it's a way of, of dealing with the, like I said, the unreality of, of life, kind of. I mean, what are some ways in which you engage in magical thinking? Um, you know, I'm, I, I pick up pennies on the sidewalk. I uh, don't walk under ladders. I, I hug trees. I used to just knock on wood, but now I, I actually will just hug a tree hmm. for, for luck or for, you know, to feel grounded or whatever. But, you know, actually, I think hugging trees is probably good in general. Trees are our friends. And, you know, it's good to like, it's good to say hi to them. I mean, so would you say that Lawrence and Patricia are kind of those two aspects of your personality and you identify equally with both of them? I definitely identify equally with both of them. And I think that uh, they definitely represent different aspects of my personality. I think that in some ways they, they have a lot in common in addition to being, you know, different in a lot of ways. I think that uh, they definitely represent, I mean, in terms of like how they deal with other people and how they deal with the world, they represent, you know, different kind of aspects of, of my you know, sense of myself, I guess. Uh, there was also this, this line I really want to ask you about. So there's a, a part where the AI character says, society is a choice between freedom on someone else's terms and slavery on yours. <laughs> right. I mean, that's almost a nonsense statement in a way, but it's also something that, that felt kind of meaningful to me because it's, you know, I mean, it, it's those are almost the same thing, but they're slightly different in terms of how they're constructive. Like, it's like um, either way, you have to kind of compromise and 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 kind of buy into other people's logic, or you know, just be subject to external constraints. It's sort of like you know, I mean, a, a big theme in this book in general is living in society and dealing with other people, and figuring out how to just handle the rest of the human race and, and all of the crazy stuff that comes with that. And that comes up again and again throughout the book. And it was almost as much as nature versus science or nature and science is a major theme in the book. Dealing with society is sort of the other theme that kept coming back to me in various ways. And I kind of feel like those two themes kind of speak to each other in a way that I can't entirely articulate, but that felt... Uh, important somehow. And in fact, that AI winds up creating kind of a new way for people to interact with each other. Uh, and that's kind of one of the ways that the book kind of works itself out is through finding better social connections. Um, you know, I had this other uh, book that I wrote, one of the other novels that never got published where a character, one character says, they've just graduated from college and they're like, well, now I can do anything I want because it's not like I can get expelled from the real world. And the other character says, well, I think that's what they call prison. <laughs> like you can't actually get expelled from the real world. It's just that getting expelled from the real world means getting locked up. Right. Right. Okay. So unfortunately we're pretty much out of time. Do you want to just talk about other projects you're working on or what else has just been going on with you? Uh, I mean, you know, I'm super excited to start my book tour and I'm working really hard on the next novel, which I'm at that stage now where I keep kind of clutching my head and saying, oh my God, what was I thinking? This is the worst idea I've ever had, which probably means that I'm making progress, I hope. Uh, and it's it's completely different from All the Birds in the Sky. It's a book set on another planet in the future. And um, at least currently, it doesn't have any humor in it at all, although that might change. Is there anything going on with io9 that you want to talk about? Uh, we're just, you know, we just merged 
with Gizmodo, which is sort of the site about science and technology. So now there's kind of a bigger, more awesome entity that kind of combines science, tech, and futurism and science fiction that's sort of like a larger, more kind of, you know, awesome version of, of what Annalie and I were designing all those years ago. It's so like one of those transformers where you combine them together <laughs> to build a bigger transformer. It's yeah, it's like Voltron or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then it also it says in your bio that uh, six months, three days is in development at NBC. Is there anything you can say about that? I can't really say anything about that right now. Um, I'm hoping that there might be some news at some point, but I think that you know um, Hollywood is this. Even though I write about pop culture in my day job, I still kind of don't fully understand the workings of Hollywood and a lot of stuff just kind of trundles through different pipelines and, and rolls around in endless loops. And then something, sometimes something emerges and sometimes nothing emerges, but you know, I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I thought that was just a terrific story. So I really hope that to see that oh, on cool. TV sometime. Well, thank you. And uh, yes, yeah, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Charlie Jane Anders. And this new book is called All the Birds in the Sky. So thank you so much for joining us. Yay, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Charlie Jane Anders for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Dreg Mort, who writes, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is an awesome podcast for the discerning geek. Its interviews and panels are top of the line, with the panels being my favorite aspect of the show. Even though David Barkerley didn't like Star Wars, I have forgiven him for putting out such an excellent podcast. Keep up the good work. So big thanks again to Dreg Mort for that great review. Special thanks as well to Will Miner and Michael Formicelli, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geekskyshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a special thank you to Michelle Bertelson, who just became PayPal patron number 131. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank the Alpha Young Writers Workshop for sponsoring today's show. Learn more over at alpha.spellcaster.org. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.